Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Live from the BBC, The Naked Scientists. Very good evening to you. Welcome to this week's edition of The Naked Scientist with me, Dr Chris Smith, and with Dr Kat. Hello. This evening, how animals learn to talk. Where did they get their communication from? How did we get our communication strategies? How did we develop language? And also, do animals have emotions? Do they feel pain? Do they get upset like we do about things? To help us find out about this tonight, we have, working in Cambridge for the year, Joan Silk. Good evening, Joan. Good evening. Nice to be here. Uh, from the University of Sussex, we have Jilly Forrester. Good evening, Jilly. Good evening, Chris. And we also have all the way down from up way north of the border, Katie. Hello. Hello, Katie. Katie Slocum. Now, if you want to ask them a question, they know all about how animals communicate. And we're going to be focusing, actually, on our next nearest relatives. We're going to be talking about gorillas, chimpanzees. But we're also going to stray into the marine mammals. We're going to talk a bit about dolphins, too, and also about sheep. And believe it or not, sheep get upset uh, when their shepherd is upset. And we'll be finding out more about what that's all about later on in today's show. On Kitchen Science this week, our dynamic kitchen duo, Derek and Dave, will be uh, taking a trip to the opera to find out how it is that you can smash a glass using your voice. So, in other words, how you can use sound waves to destroy things. So they're in Sam and Alexander's kitchen this week, and we'll be crossing to them very, very soon to find out how sound can be used to destroy things. But before that, with a roundup of what else to look forward to, here's Dr Cat. Yes, tonight on the show, Chris is going to be telling you about how you can fool your own nose to think that manure smells nice. So uh, really do come up smelling of roses. It should come in handy with you in the studio, Cat, with your smelly feet there. It wasn't my feet last week, it was Petro's. And uh, also I'll be telling you about uh, how we think that kangaroos are actually afraid of the sound of their own feet, which might be a bit difficult when they're hopping around in Australia. You can also phone in, play our quiz, Science Fact or Science Fiction. Phone in on 08459 Fabulous, fabulous prizes this week. We have tickets to the IMAX down in London. This is the 3D huge screen, big booming stereo cinema. That's definitely worth having. Um, we've also got tickets for a play that's going on at RADA. Uh, this is in the Gilgood Lecture Theatre, uh, Gilgood Theatre down in um, RADA in London. And it's a play all about... Um, it's called A Fable of Rocketry, Sex and High Magic. And it's written all about Jack Parsons, who is uh, apparently the father of rockets, but was also very into the occult and black magic. So I think that'll be fascinating. And we've got tickets for that you can win. And also, as ever, the Encyclopedia Britannica on DVD... How good is that? Get phoning in now. Do the quiz. Science fact, science fiction. 08459252000. Or you can email me, of course, chris at nakedscientist.com. Any science question on anything, or if you just want to say hello, or if you're listening to the podcast during the week and you're in a far-flung part of the world, we have heard now from someone in Argentina. I'll read that one out in a second. But we haven't got anyone from Madagascar yet. If anyone's listening in Madagascar, we'd love to hear from you from there. The Naked Scientist Podcast, brought to you by thenakedscientist.com.
Very good evening to you. Welcome to The Naked Scientist, if you have just joined us. We are, of course, talking all about the science of animal communication and language. Where do we get our language from and how do we talk to each other? How do animals talk to each other? If you have a question about that or a speculation, 08459 or email us, chris at nakedscientist.com. I've got an email here from Robin Ridden, who is in San Diego and says, Hiya, from sunny San Diego. Well, I wish it was sunny here. I'm getting your programme on the podcast and I love it. Uh, my question is, how and why does your thi- skin get thin when you get older, does it really get thin or is this something else going on? P.S. Love the snot programme. is referring to the fact that we did a programme uh, towards the beginning of the series that was Derek and Dave in the kitchen demonstrating why the nose needs snot. And the nose needs snot because, of course, it traps all the fine particles and viruses and other bacteria that you breathe in and helps to filter the air that reaches your lungs. In answer to your question, Robin, um, yes, skin does get thinner when you get older. And the reason for that is you, if you zoom in on skin with a very, very powerful microscope, what you'd be able to see is that the two key things that make skin one of them is called collagen that's a protein and the other one called elastin that's an elastic substance they actually get lesser and lesser in frequency and number in the skin as you get older so in other words your skin loses some of its elasticity and it loses some of the matrix or the substance that makes the skin so your skin does become thinner and a bit more papery the older you get you can also make that more likely to happen if you take certain drugs and steroids and steroid cream also makes your skin go very thin and brittle fragile and, and papery so skin unfortunately does get thinner as you get older and it's because you lose elastic tissue. Anyway, if you'd like to send us a question like Robin, just write to me, chris at nakedscientist.com. We love hearing from you if you're from somewhere far flung in the world too, Kat. I really want to hear... Sorry Here's my that, mic on. Um, I really want to hear from somewhere, someone in the Far East, like Singapore. If you're listening in Singapore or Hong Kong, I'd really like to hear from you. That'd be great. Now, all right, what's this kind of noise? You banging on the desk? No, well, it's meant to be. It's meant to be a kangaroo, OK? Kangaroos. Kangaroos in Australia are a complete pain, basically. They, uh, they damage farms, they go all over the place, and they keep getting run over on roads, and uh, they get hit by cars. And so, um, normally, people deter kangaroos by using very high-pitched sounds, so non-natural squealing sounds. So you can give us a squealing sound, Chris? Well, I was going to say, they've got a device like that that keeps teenagers away from shop fronts in Wales. Whee! Did you know about that? No. There's a, a bloke in Wales who's had a lot of uh, problems with teenagers hanging around the front of his shop. And so he's got this audio device, which uh, it plays sound at a frequency which teenagers are sensitive to. But as you get older, because we clap out as we get older and ears become less sensitive, it doesn't really trouble adults. So adults can enter the shop with impunity. But people who might like to loiter outside the shop who are of a younger persuasion tend to be so annoyed by this sound that they go away. They could just play Wagner, I think, as well. Anyway, kangaroos. So normally you get rid of kangaroos by playing this high-pitched noise. Um, But it doesn't really work that well. And uh, the kangaroos don't get freaked out by it too much. But they found out that kangaroos use the sound of their own feet to, uh, to alert other kangaroos in the area to danger. And so it seems quite obvious, but no-one's done this before, is playing recordings of kangaroo feet noises. And it scares away the kangaroos, and it just generally increases alertness in the kangaroos. So they don't eat, they don't trash the farm, and they think that it'll be a really good way of keeping kangaroos away from the roads as well. So kangaroos, scared of their own feet. I'm scared of your feet. Anyway. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with my feet, Chris. They are beautiful. You had your shoes off under the desk last week, and I wonder what that cheesy odour was that kept <laughs> coming up. And then I saw her putting her shoes on at the end of the show. Anyway, talking of cheesy and smelly odours and things, manure. Now, anyone who's had to live downstream of a pig farm knows only too well what it's like when farmers decide to fertilise their fields the natural way. It's very unpleasant indeed. And is there a way around the problem apart from moving house? Well, it looks like there could be, because there's a couple of researchers from Philadelphia 
at the, Men- at the Manel Chemical Sciences Centre. And they're called George Pretty and Charles Wysocki. And they have discovered a scent which can actually make you insensitive to the smell of manure. In other words, it fools your nose into thinking that manure doesn't smell bad. Now, when you smell something, if you smell it for long enough, there's a process called adaptation that, that kicks in. And this is when the nose becomes less sensitive to a smell that's present for a long time. So in other words, if you walk into, into your house or you walk into someone else's house, you'll notice immediately the smell of their house. And often it's very striking, isn't it? But then after a very short time, you stop noticing that smell. And that's adaptation. That's your nose switching off its response to that smell because it's present all the time. There are also other chemicals floating around in the environment that can do a process called cross-adaptation. In other words, they stop the nose noticing the smell of other chemicals. And so what these two researchers have done is they first of all looked at manure to see what the chemicals in manure were that make it smell so nasty, the bouquet de manure, if you like. And once they got those chemicals, and there there are a couple of sulphur-containing chemicals chiefly, they then went looking for a, a second group of chemicals that could block the nose's ability to smell them. In other words, they switched off the nerves in the nose that respond to those chemicals. And so what they've eventually come up with is something called the ethyl ester of 3-methyl-2-octanoic acid. And this has quite a nice smell itself, but when you put that up your nose, it makes the nerve fibres that would normally smell manure completely switch off. And so what they're suggesting is that farmers could add this chemical to their manure And then when the manure smell came drifting downwind, it would bring with it this additional chemical, which is completely harmless, by the way. And your nose then wouldn't be able to notice the nasty niff of the manure. It wouldn't work like an air freshener by masking it. It would work by quite literally making your nose blind to the smell of the manure. Fantastic invention. All we need is to invent one for my feet then, obviously. Now, (laughs) um, for all of you who are listening out on the podcast, we do podcast the show every week from www.nakedscientist.com and uh, we want your podcasts in as well. We want people to record as an MP3, sort of one and a half minutes, one minute, little picks about science and every week Pedro listens to them and he comes up with his podcast pick. Now this week he's got something absolutely brilliant and it fits in with our theme generally of, of monkeys and communication because there are people in America, who do not believe that we evolved from a sort of primitive type of monkey and they think that we were created by God not very long ago. And anyway, we've had a letter from Arthur Hines in America who says, Dear Sirs, I love your podcasts. You are insane. Thanks, Arthur. Um, And he's written a little song um, with his band, Emerald Rose, and it was inspired by evolution and it's called We Come From Monkeys. So here it is. We Come From Monkeys by Emerald Rose. Darwin had a revelation He said our life evolved from the confusion He had a theory It made some people nervous When he came to the embarrassing conclusion We come from monkeys We're not so special We've only got a little extra DNA The two fanciers are very close to us A Australopithecus He's not so far away We come from monkeys swinging in the trees A little bit of monkey inside you and me monkey in the middle, a monkey on your back. It's a fundamental problem, but a scientific fact. Come, Come from, from monkeys. monkeys. <laughs> That's absolutely brilliant.
brilliant. You're listening to The Naked Scientist on BBC Radio in the east of England. And that was um, Arthur Hines with his band Emerald Rose performing their song, We Come From Monkeys. You can listen to more of stuff like that and find out more about his band. We can band. get the rest of the song because that's and only, the rest a, that's of only the song, a snapshot. That's fantastic at www.emeraldrose.com. And uh, if you've got any comments on that, or if you've got any songs yourself, email us at chris at nakedscientist.com, get phoning in 08459 And uh, we want people to play the quiz. We've got theatre tickets, IMAX tickets, all sorts of malarkey up for grabs. We want to hear from you now. And, of course, we are going to be very shortly talking to Jilly Forrester from the University of Sussex. We're going to be talking to Katie Slocum, who's up, at, from, uh, up in St Andrews, and Joan Silk from here in Cambridge about how animals communicate and what they think about other animals. In other words, do they really give a toss about their neighbours in the same way that we're told to love thy neighbour? If you have any questions on how animals communicate, and we'll also talk about marine mammals like dolphins and whales, get your questions in now, 08459 25 2000, or email me, chris at nakedscientist.com. I've got an email here from Argentina, I promised you one. This is from Pablo and he says hello you were wondering if anyone from Argentina was listening well I am and I love your programme keep the excellent podcast coming and he's in Buenos Aires so thank you very much Pablo now it's time now to head over to Kitchen Science to our dynamic duo Derek Thorne and Dave Ansell who are this week in Sam and Alexander's kitchen where they are going to be finding out about the science of sound in other words what, what you can do destructively with sound how you can break things including glasses and this is it's, it's a real fact that opera singers can smash glasses with their voices and now we're going to find out exactly how they do it hello Derek yes hello Chris we are here in the Naked Science Laboratory once again where this week science meets opera I kid you not and uh, with me, of course, is Dave. Good evening, Dave. Good evening, Derek. Fantastic. And also, we've got two wonderful helpers here. Um, would you guys care to tell me your names and ages? Firstly, you, sir. Hi, I'm Sam, and I'm 12. Excellent. And, and yourself? Hi, I'm Alexander, and I'm also 12. Fantastic. Thank you. And Sam, so what do you like about science, then? I like blowing stuff up in the chemistry lab. OK. And yourself, Alexander? Just general chemistry. You're in for some really good stuff tonight, then. So, Dave, what have we got today? OK, right. Have any of you swung on a swing before? Yeah. Yep. You know when you get yourself to swing by wobbling your feet? Yeah. Your yes. Okay. Yeah. Have you ever tried wobbling your feet at entirely the wrong speed? What happens? You sort of don't swing and you go sideways. Just sort of bounce around and don't move very yeah. far, yeah? But if you wobble your feet at exactly the right speed, the same speed as the swing wants to swing, the swing builds up and up and up until you have a great time and maybe even fall off. Yeah, I know that. <laughs> yes, right? that happens. Uh, very familiar with that, aren't you guys? Right, okay, so... Okay, now we have a look at something else. Here we have a rather nice quality crystal wine glass. Because we are a quality production here. So do you think this is going to wobble very much? No. Okay, but if you listen when I ping it, and I just touch it, what can you feel? Vibrating. You can feel it vibrating, yeah. yeah. If you ping a wine glass, it'll wobble, and it'll wobble the air, and then that's what you hear as sound, and that's why you can hear it when you ping it. Okay, now, in the same way as when you put, if you wobble the swing at the speed it wants to wobble at, it'll swing loads. Now, we're going to find out what happens if you wobble a glass at exactly the speed it wants to wobble at. Okay, Dave, so, of course, when we ping it, I suppose we're just wobbling it, and the glass is resonating because it's uh, wobbling at the frequency it naturally wobbles at... Uh, but what we're going to do is force it to wobble even more, right? That's right. OK, what I've got over here is a really big loudspeaker set just below my glass. 
And I've set this all in a really big, solid soundproof box because it gets very, very loud. Okay, so let me just explain this then. Basically, this soundproof box that we've set up here in the Naked Science Lab is really a wooden box inside another wooden box. And both of these boxes have some kind of perspex windows in them so we can actually see inside and see what's going on. And within these, uh, there's a, a speaker, a big speaker, and above it, suspended, is an identical wine glass to the quality one that we just pinged for uh, Sam Alexander here. And that's all set up. And, well, I mean, why the soundproof box, Dave? I mean, why do we really need that? Because it gets up to over, like, 120 decibels in there, so we would all be deafened if we didn't have this box. OK, then, so what are we going to do with it? Well, I've already tuned it to exactly the right pitch for this glass. So what we're going to do, if you guys can come round and have a look at the glass, I'm going to gently turn up the volume and we can see if we can notice anything. If you look very carefully at the edge of the glass, can you see anything changing? Is it starting to become a little more fuzzy? So That's right. It's almost as if it's moving very, very fast. Yeah. Now like the hummingbird, perhaps. Yeah, like the wings of a hummingbird. Yeah. That's right. Now, the problem is we can't really see it at the moment. Now, what we've got over here is a strobe light. This flashes very fast, and it can slow down the motion of things. OK, so if we turn this on, can you see anything? Wow. It's like growing and then shrinking in one way and then growing and shrinking in another undulating. Does that look right to you, for a glass to be doing that? Not really at all, no. And it's sort of stretching downwards, so it's not round anymore. It's like turning into an oval one way, then the oval the other way. Mm. So what we're seeing here, really, is just the glass wobbling, and it seems to be wobbling very slowly. I mean, it's maybe wobbling one way and then the other, maybe twice a second or something. So why is this, Dave? How are we able to see this? It's, it's actually wobbling at 500 times every second. But because the strobe light is flashing at almost the same speed, it will slow down the motion. Uh, a bit like if you've ever been dancing in a nightclub and you wave your hands, and it looks like mo your, mo your hand's moving really slowly. It's the same effect. And so we can actually see the glass moving. Now, what do you think will happen if we turn the volume right up? Will it move even more? Will move even more? Well, let's have a look. Let's try this. Look, it broke. It, <laughs> it didn't shatter, though. Sort of just cut clean in half. OK, so, so then, I mean, we've all heard about opera singers, you know, singing really, really loud and actually shattering glass. Is this the same thing? It's the same thing that opera singers were supposed to be able to do. The opera singers sing at exactly the right note for the glass, and the glass slowly wobbles more and more and more until eventually it breaks. But people have done some experiments on this, and apparently with modern glasses, an opera singer wouldn't be able to sing anywhere near loud enough to make it work. Really? So is it a myth? Well, it's possible old-fashioned glasses weren't made quite as well as modern ones. They had little flaws in them or little scratches, so it makes them a lot easier to break. So it's just possible that an opera singer could have broken a glass like this. Fantastic. Well, I'm afraid I don't think any of us could have sung quite loud enough to... Even if we joined in, not quite loud enough to do that. What do you think? Nah, yeah, it's like, certainly not. It's loud standing outside the box, and if you put your hand on the desk, you can sort of feel it's it vibrating. vibrate. Well, thank you very much, guys, for helping us out and telling us what's been happening. What did you think of our wobbling glass? Can't say I've seen anything like it before. Unique. Fantastic. Well, I hope you enjoyed it very much. Myself and Dave certainly did, and uh, we're off to do... We like opera, don't we, Dave? So we're off to do a bit of, a bit of singing, aren't we? You can, Derek. All right, then, I will. Chris, it is back to you in the studio. Goodbye.
Thank you very much to Derek and Dave with Sam and Alexandra in their kitchen finding out how it is that you can smash things with your voice. If you have any questions for us about anything to do with language, science, technology or medicine in general, 08459 25 2000 with me, Dr Chris and Dr Kat, the Naked Scientist, here with you on BBC Local Radio across the east of England until 7 o'clock. I have an email here. Uh, this, this is for you guys over there, for uh, Gillian and Katie, who are our guests this evening, as well as Joan Silk, who's sitting here. Uh, this is from Bradley. This one's coming from California, in fact. Your hometown, Joan. Uh, well, not hometown, home state. Uh, it says, that why would our eyes have developed to take in more information than our brains can process? Secondly, if we only use something like 5% of our brain, is the rest a lump of useless mess? And what would happen if you stimulated the unused portions? Take it away, guys. What do you think, Jilly? Well, let's see. The eyes themselves really are um, <clears throat> connected to the visual apparatus in the brain. And your eyes are really a lens to project information for the brain to process. So if your eyes were going to do all the filtering of what's important to see, you'd actually have to have the brain inside the eye. And um, since that's not really <laughs> how we've evolved, um, the eye is going to take in the information and the brain's going to process it. Now, as, as for the 5% of the brain being used, um, I think any neuroscientist would, would regard that as, as a, a non-truth. Um, Joan, what do you, what, what's your feeling on that? You certainly don't use only 5% of your brain at once, surely. Sometimes I wonder which part of my brain I am using. <laughs> um, I have no professional opinion about that, but I do know that brains are exceedingly expensive. Something like 30 40% of, of your energy is in, in just driving your brain. That, absolutely right. And evolution is a very frugal process, so if we didn't need it, we wouldn't have it. S but which part we're using? Well, I, th I think from my sort of perspective on this, as, as a doctor, we only have to see how quickly someone's brain gets damaged if you have a stroke uh, with a small interruption of blood supply uh, to highlight what Joan, the point Joan's making, which is that your brain is incredibly hungry for oxygen. In fact, if you look at how much oxygen you burn up in a minute, then 20 to 25% of that oxygen is just being used by your brain, but it only makes up 2% of your whole body mass. So it's an incredibly energy-hungry organ. So to have 95% of it sitting around doing nothing for most of the time just does not make evolutionary or economic sense. So that's just not true. It's an urban myth. You're, all of your brain is needed pretty much all the time, but certain bits of it become more active than others when you actually need them. And the way we, we know that's the case is because there are very fancy brain scanners now that can pinpoint which bits of the brain are doing which jobs. And so when you take somebody and you put them <coughs> in a brain scanner, you can actually then watch what the brain's doing as you give them a task to do. So you could ask them to look at something, or you could ask them to name an object, or you could ask them to listen to music. And you can see that certain parts of the brain that correspond to the, the, to the parts of the brain that do the job of listening to music or naming objects, they light up in the brain scanner. And, that, and those parts of the brain do those particular jobs. So although the brain isn't necessarily 100% active in all regions at all times, if you took away any part of it you'd be very disabled. And if you look at people who have a stroke and it just damages a small part of the brain, they usually have very profound disability. So you need all your brain. It's too hungry for you to only use 5% of it. And if you stimulate any bit of your brain, as, as the question goes, what would happen if you stimulate the unused bit? What would happen is that the job that that bit of brain does would suddenly start to occur in your consciousness. So if, And you can do this, in fact. There's a thing called transcutaneous magnetic electrical stimulation. You take a very big, powerful magnet. It's shaped like a letter 8. And you hold it over someone's skull and you can make the bit 
bit of the brain that it's held over become active. And what you can do is to is to make people move their hands or move their arms or say things without even wanting to. It's absolutely amazing. Can you make people have bizarre hallucinations and things? It depends which bit of the brain you stimulate, but you can actually evoke some pretty extraordinary experiences, yeah. And, and there are some bits of the brain which, if you stimulate them, they make people have funny religious experiences. They make them, they make them feel almost godlike, or they make them feel like they've come into contact with God. That's incredible. And this kind of suggests that perhaps the reason that we've, we, we believe in God or we want to believe in God is because there's a part of our brain that makes us want to believe in God and, and we feel fulfilled when we do because it's activating that part of the nervous system. We have some kind of religion centre. I saw a fantastic piece of research the other day that um, some scientists were looking at the neurons in your brain that were responsible for music and how you recognise a tune. So, you know, you hear a tune played on a flute and you hear a tune played on a piccolo. And how do you tell they're actually the same tune, but there are very different pitches? And they found these little bits of the brain, and uh, you can make measurements from them. Uh, they, they did this experiment in marmosets that are a type of monkey, and um, I couldn't quite work it out because marmosets are not known for their great um, musical appreciation. <laughs> but apparently they have a very similar hearing range to humans. And they think that this particular part of the brain has evolved, not just so that we can appreciate music, because we're the only species that does, but for speech and communication, because we have very complicated speech patterns. You know, males have very deep voices. You, you hear different intonations. So uh, absolutely fascinating area of research, the brain. And we, I think we really know so little about it. Laying the facts bare, the naked scientists. Dr Chris, Dr Cat here with you through until seven. We're talking animal communication and the science of how the brain learned to talk this evening. If you'd like to ask us a question, we have three of the country's foremost experts here. We have Joan Silk, who's popped in to Cambridge for a year, but actually normally works in the States. So she's an expert on how actually we've evolved to be nice to each other. So we'll be talking to her shortly. We have Katie Slocum from the University of St Andrews, and she's working on how animals actually learn to use language and make sounds, a bit bit like some of us do. And we also have Jilly Forrester, who's from the University of Sussex, and she's working on body language. So, Jilly, first of all, bring us up to speed. Obviously, we as human beings have quite complicated, we like to think we have complex patterns of language, but presumably we got it from somewhere. And so looking at our next nearest relatives, apes and primates, must be a good starting point. What have they told us? Well, let, let me back up a little bit, because um, I'll tell you what, why it's important that we look at communication in, in apes. Um, for for two reasons. One, it's going to be very interesting to learn the strategies that great apes use to communicate with one another because they may not be identical to the way we communicate with one another. And secondly, it may help us place ourselves within the evolutionary process. So we might learn a little bit about the way that communication evolved in humans. And the thing that I like to look at in great apes are these strategies that they use to communicate. As humans, we use our vocal signals mainly, our speech, but we don't use them in isolation. We use our facial expressions, our body postures, our manual gestures, and our eye gaze also to communicate information. And these are very important aspects of how we relay information. And do the, do the apes do that too? Absolutely. So in the same way that I might wink at you, suggestively... <laughs> I'm not saying it would, but if I did... Um, <laughs> it's your no, wife listening, Chris. <laughs> Luckily she's at work. Um, if I did that, would, would they resort to the same kind of, maybe not so subtle, but do they resort to body language in the same way? They do, and gorillas in particular are quite um, non-vocal animals, and they do resort to a lot of manual gesture and facial expression to convey information. So looking at these different strategies, um, I'm looking to see if there are particular structures or patterns in the way that these animals are communicating with one another. 
do they use anything like you know thumbs up how <laughs> what sort of gestures do they use you know what's what's means good what means bad or do they have things like that um, interesting question. I, I'm trying not at this point to label anything because I really don't want a subjective component on how I'm looking at uh, the information that they're relaying to one another. What I really want to find out is if I can look at all the different modes of communication that they use, as I said, facial expression and, and gaze and manual gesture and so forth, and code every tiny bit of these actions and then run it through some fancy stats to see if there's any patterns coming out. So, for instance, if you use a manual gesture consistently with the same sort of facial expression in the same context and that comes out reliably over time, we might say that that is a gesture and from the context we might be able to say, well, this is potentially what meaning it has. Where do we get our gestures from, though? Because I, I learned to do a thumbs up from people who say, Are you OK? And they do it, and so I copy. Do the great apes have a similar capacity to look and see what others do and then just apply them and copy them? They do, but you're opening a big can of worms there. <laughs> There's a big debate over something called ontogenetic ritualization and social learning. And these are the differences between things that are somewhat innate to the species versus things that are learned over time. And there have been a lot of studies looking at how learning arises within and between different groups of, of great apes. And there is no, I mean, Joan or Katie jump in here, but to my knowledge, there is not any certainty as, as there's a, a bit of both. So are you just studying one group of gorillas? Currently, yes, a family group of Western lowland gorillas. Because it would be intriguing to see. There's been a few studies that have found different animals almost have regional accents. Some you know, ducks quack in slightly different ways. And do, do you think that gorillas might have regional accents? Definitely. In, in terms of the way that they gesture and communicate with one another, we've already seen from the few papers that have been out that different captive gorillas have different types of gestures uh, with it within their own groups. Absolutely. Now, how do they actually learn these things? Are they, are they pretty good at picking up skills? If you show one gorilla how to do something, do others then immediately mm -hmm. copy them? Again, the terminology is quite confusing as, as to whether we call these imitation or social learning, etc. But um, I can just tell you a little anecdote from the gorillas that I work with. Um, they're in a, we, we call them semi-free-ranging gorillas in that they've got an absolutely massive enclosure. And one of the things that they have in their enclosure is what we call a honeypot and this is a stable um, metal device that's that's actually permanently in their enclosure, and it has a hole in it, and they can choose a stick and dip it into the honey pot, and every Thursday it's refilled. <laughs> and they, they can get this treat out of the honey pot. Now, two gorillas were taught actually how to perform this task. So you showed them? I didn't show them personally. These were two gorillas that were shown probably about 12 years ago by the original keepers how to do this task and now the whole family group of 13 are very proficient at learning this and the youngsters uh, do learn from from um, either imitation or social learning. You're listening to The Naked Scientist, Dr Chris and Dr Kat. We're with you until seven and we're talking this evening about how animals communicate, how they teach each other to do things and how they learn to do things. If you want to ask any of our guests this evening, Gillian Forrester, we'll have Katie Slocum here and Joan Silk. If you'd like to ask any of them a question about how animals communicate or have learned to communicate or evolve the capacity to, to speak and use kinds of language like we do, 
08459 25 2000 is the number to call. We'll be talking to Rose in just a second. She's in Peterborough and has a question about the voice. And if you want to email me anything, chris at nakedscientist.com is our email address. Baffled by biology? Yep. Foxed by physics? Oh, yes. To get your question answered, call the Naked Scientist now on 08459 25 2000 or email chris at nakedscientist.com. Someone who's been looking at how animals can make noises and those noises can be interpreted by other animals is Katie Slocum. Hi, Katie. Hi, Chris. So tell us a bit about your work and how you got into doing what you're doing. Okay, well, um, I'm interested really in how chimpanzees use um, their vocal sounds um, to communicate uh, with each other about things in the world. Um, So... Um, one of the really key things about our own language is that we can use words to refer to things in the world. So when I say table, I'm sure you can now all visualise a table in your mind. So you know what that word refers to. And that's obviously a very key element to our language. Um, So without that ability, we really couldn't talk about very much. And so we're interested to see where does this ability come from? Um, so I started to look at chimpanzees. Um, are, are, they, are they literally our closest relative? Yes. Chimpanzees. Yes. So at a, a, at a genetic level, they're our closest relative. Yes. But do you think they really are our closest relative at a behavioural and in the way in which they function sort of level as well? Um, yes. I, I mean, I haven't had any experience they share the most working with other apes, but yes, I think uh, so chimpanzees and So they're a, they're a good model for yes. us. If it's in us we can probably trace it back to them, at least in some kind of vestige. Yes, that's, okay. th- that's, that's the idea behind it. Um, and with this ability to refer to things in the, in the world, um, it's been quite confusing until recently because there's actually quite good evidence that monkeys can do this. Um, so baboons, um, vervet monkeys that live in Africa, um, they all give alarm calls to different types of predators um, and the listening monkeys seem to understand what they mean. So when they give a snake alarm call... Um, all the listening monkeys will stand up on their and, back and that legs. Is specific for a snake. Yeah, and so scan the ground as if they're sound, looking. This sound yeah. is only snake. Yeah, and then they have another one which is eagle. And so then when they hear the eagle call, they'll all look up to try and find the eagle. Um, and then there's a leopard one, and then they'll run up into the trees and look down on the ground. As Kat was saying earlier, some of them have quite a regional specificity yeah. in some animals. The same true for these monkeys. If you were to record those calls and take them to a very different part of the world where those monkeys also live and play those calls, would they be interpreted in the same way, or do they have different sort of language there, if you like? No, no I, I don't think so with the monkeys. Um, I, I think it's 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 quite hardwired, so I don't think there's much learning. So I that's think, kind of genetic, then? Yes, I think, I think it is. Um, well, the production is... they all of the monkeys have to learn to understand the meaning so they basically have to have the experience of hearing the eagle alarm call and then an eagle appearing and they have to learn that as their youngsters because the young monkeys will actually give eagle alarm calls to anything that's falling so they'll give it to oh, leaves right. okay. um small birds that you know and the adults would know that they weren't actually a risk to them um, but they will give give the alarm call. So the the youngsters also have to learn what to actually give the eagle alarm call. So they get better as they get older, only then giving it to eagles. So do the adults ignore the youngsters because yes. they cry wolf too many times? Yeah. <laughs> so that's intriguing, isn't it? Because that, that will mean that the youngsters are occasionally going to be right, but the, the older ones might think, oh, that's just a youngster, nah, yeah. we'll ignore him. And then actually they become croppers because of it. 
yeah, that, that that could happen. Um, but generally, um, nobody takes. I mean, maybe they would give a, a, a small glance up, but generally, they they won't um, alar- continue the alarm calling. Whereas, if say an adult male were to give an eagle alarm call, most other monkeys would then reply with the correct behaviour and then giving alarm calls of their own. Where if it's a juvenile, they might look up to check if there's an eagle there, but you know they won't take it as read that they're actually correct. And okay, now turning to chimpanzees for a minute, because yeah. that's what you you looked at chimps, didn't yeah. you? What do we see in chimps in terms of, of a precursor to human language? OK, well, th- this is the confusing thing. Up until now, um, really, we didn't know anything about um, the vocal communication in apes. So there's all this evidence that monkeys can do these quite clever things with their alarm calls. Um, and there's, there's nothing comparable for, for apes. So I started to look at it in chimps. Um, and I work both in the wild and in captivity. Um, and you, I st- you personally are at monkeys in chimps in captivity? Uh, <laughs> chimps in captivity. Your PhD had you chained into the lab. <laughs> mm, felt like it sometimes, but no, not really. Um, and so I started to look at um, the calls that the chimpanzees make um, when they're finding food. And the idea was that um, in some monkey species, it's been shown that um, the monkeys give different calls depending on the quality of the food. So they have one call for high quality food and one call for a low quality That's like food. yum or yuck. Yeah, basically. And then so listening monkeys can, can uh, understand something about the type of food that's available to them and then maybe decide, oh, actually, I don't fancy going and joining them for dinner, you know, or, oh, great, I'll rush along before that's all gone. Um, so... Um, I was, as I said, I was looking at these food calls. Um, and so I started off by recording um, the noises that the chimps were making when they were eating different types of food. Um, and then I um, tested, I, I did this work at Edinburgh Zoo, um, and I then tested each individual's preferences. Um, so I basically gave them two choices of food and just saw which one they picked over the other. And so in the end, we could, we could actually um, list the foods in, in the order that they liked them. And at the zoo and there... And you, you knew what sounds went with that Yeah, food and so thing. basically, um, at the end, uh, when we had our, our preference hierarchy for all of them, they absolutely love bread. It's a bit odd, but above everything else, they absolutely they go absolutely bananas for, for bread. No pun intended. Yeah. No, absolutely but what not. About bananas? They don't like bananas. Then. No, no, bananas are uh, probably second. Um, Banana sandwiches. That, that would that would actually be good, probably sort of the ideal. Half. Yeah, maybe with a little bit of mango in, that would be perfect. <laughs> Marmalade or something. But okay, um, so what did you, you 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 know now what they like and what order yeah. they like it in? You know the sounds that go with the particular yeah. foods. So what what did you do then? Okay, so so we then wanted to test to see if listening listening chimps could actually, you know, take this information about the food quality um, from these vocalisations. So we then set up to try and do a playback experiment. So this basically means that we play the calls back from a speaker um, when actually there's no food there at all, because so otherwise the same monkeys you've recorded or chimpanzees, sorry, yeah. the same chimpanzees you've recorded earlier, yeah. you just got that on tape. Yeah, so basically we've got it. Want. Yes, because otherwise, I mean, you could just look at their natural reactions. But you see, the trouble is then you can't tell what they're picking up from visual cues from the other chimps, or maybe they've actually just seen the food directly. So the idea is to give the calls completely in isolation and just say, right, on the basis just of what you're hearing, what can you actually tell about the external world? Um, so before we did that, we actually established two trees in the um, enclosure, one of which gave out bread and one of which gave out apples. And sorry, I forgot to say earlier, the apples, are their low value food. So they're really they not very good. Yeah, I, I, no. I've got an apple here this evening, but it's, it's a Brayburn. It's yeah. kind of average. No, they wouldn't be very fussed by that, really. But better, um, than, better, better than bread, though. 
But anyway, well, so, not so, what, the so what did you actually find <laughs> okay. then? So when um, you played this music, well, music, the vocalizations back, what what happened? So um, we had a, the the subject with the, um, we played them back to. Would then when he heard bread grunts, he would then go and search for longer and much more um, thoroughly under the bread tree than he would under the apple tree. And then when he heard grunts that had been given to apples, he would then go and search um, for longer and search for, um, more under the apple tree than the bread tree. So this kind of suggests that these are meaningful sounds that mean. Yeah. A particular thing about a particular food to these animals. Yes. Um, do, do now the obvious question that I keep going back to this that Cat asked earlier was: if you have different animals in different geographical settings, do the same sounds mean the same to them? And, and if you were to go to the to another zoo, or if you were to go into the wild and record grunts from there, do grunts for high value food items, bread for a wild animal, for example, would they mean the same, and would they sound the same? Um, I, we've got preliminary evidence in the wild that um, the grunts do sound the same, and the high high preference food in the in the wild tends to elicit. Uh, similar sounding calls but obviously in the wild it's not bread they're grunting to it's a type of fig you know and their low value food is leaves not not apples um so if it's if it's quality then it, it should transfer across the only other possibility though that we have yet to test and we're running experiments this summer to try and look at this is actually of, of, we think it's high quality and low quality that they are actually labeling but of course it could actually be as specific as bread and apples now, if it is as specific as bread and apples, then obviously that wouldn't transfer across groups because they must have learnt those associations. That's what a bread is and this is what an apple tastes like. Yeah, no? but that, that's obviously a learnt association. Um, so, uh, so hopefully we'll know later, you know, how, actually how specific these vocalisations are. The Naked Scientists, supported by the Wellcome Trust. Naked Scientists, Dr Chris and Dr Kat here with you through until 7 o'clock on BBC Local Radio right across the east of England. If you would like to ask us a question or ask our guests a question, we have with us Jilly Forrester and we also have Katie Slocum and Joan Silk here. We're talking about how animals communicate and how humans ended up communicating, how we're having this conversation over the radio. How did that? How did we evolve to be able to do that? If you want to ask us a question, 08459 or you can email me, chris at nakedscientist.com. Very shortly we're going to be talking to Rose, who's in Peterborough. But first of all, we're going to go to Paynton Zoo to talk to Dr Vicky Melfi, who is working on baboons. And what's really interesting about baboons is that they're the animals with those big red bums that you see, the super bums of the zoo world. And actually, it's becoming a bit of a problem because evolution is kicking in. And these bums, which are females use to attract mates, are, rela- are resulting in some baboons breeding more than others. And so what you're breeding is an Evolving series of even bigger bottoms and these big bums are becoming a major problem for these animals just getting around and doing their daily business. So Vicky Melfi is looking into this problem and she joins us from Paint and Sue to tell us all about it. Seasonal or sexual swellings are the big red bottoms that you see when you see certain baboons and macaques and invariably the things that visitors love to point at. So these big red bottoms indicate that the females are ready for breeding. Different individuals will have different sizes of sexual swelling, they're different colours, and also the turgidity or the squidginess will differ. What we're particularly interested, though, is that in different zoos, it would seem that these characteristics clump together. So, for example, in zoo A, you might get particularly big swellings, and zoo B, they might be a lot smaller. So we're interested in trying to find out what factors contribute to the to these differences between institutions and whether it's nutrition or whether it's genetic um, and if so then we need to start moderating our husbandry to ensure that the swellings remain fairly consistent between institutions. 
Because there are obvious implications for when these animals go back into the wild. Yeah, there, there are implications both for breeding in zoos and also for conservation. Um, in terms of reintroducing animals back into the wild, if these um, swellings are being sustained by very, very high nutrition, then in the wild the, the, the swellings might not be sustainable because the animals can't get enough food. Equally though, these bottoms can become so large that animals may have difficulty escaping from predators or, or, or locomoting. And so it sort of sounds very amusing, but it could be quite, quite an important thing that we need to look at. So are you thinking that by breeding these animals in zoos that you're slowly selecting for a bigger and bigger bottom genetically and so you might be breeding a sort of population of super bottoms? The bigger my bottom, the more fertile I am, therefore I'll have more offspring and vis-a-vis I'll have more babies that will go on and have bigger bottoms and they get bigger and bigger. At some point there needs to be an environmental factor that stops these bottoms getting bigger than they can be sustained. Now, not only can this tell us about what is the function of these bottoms... Um, as signals so we might be able to find out which of our females is most fertile because she has the biggest bottom it might be the colour so it could be the reddest bottom is the most attractive to a male now these are all very pure reproductive um, problems that are interesting to us but on the applied side as a zoo managing these species it's also very important for us to understand the implications if we are just breeding animals which don't have this environmental cutoff so their bottoms just keep getting bigger. Now, now to get to the bottom of the problem, pardon the pun, uh, why do their bums actually go red? What's going on? It's something that when the male goes past he cannot miss that this female is ready for breeding and for certain different primates um, colours change as the animals get closer to ovulation. So if you're a male in charge of lots of different females then they may be coming into season at different times and you want to make sure you look after that female and don't leave her over the couple of days of ovulation. So sometimes the bottoms can get reddest when that female is ovulating and that's when the male wants to stay next to her so no other males can mate with her while she's ovulating. It's a bit like a sexual traffic light, isn't it? It could, it, yes, it most definitely is, but red doesn't mean stop in this scenario. <laughs> so Dr Chris and Dr Kat here with you as the Naked Scientists through until seven. We're talking this evening about how animals communicate. Vicky Melfi there from Paynton Zoo and the University of Plymouth talking about how baboons make their bums go red in order to act like a sexual traffic light and attract the opposite sex. It's a good job that doesn't happen in a nightclub, isn't it? Let's have a quick chat to Rose who's in Peterborough. Hello Rose. Hi. How are you this evening? I'm okay. Uh, now, what's your question? Well, it's about the human body, and it is, um, is, is your voice goes all croaky, mm. does anything happen to your voice box to make right. it go all croaky? Well, I think you deserve 10 out of 10 straight away because you've made the observation that something changes with your voice and that must be related to your voice box. So 10 out of 10 straight away. The answer to the question is this. The way you make sounds with your voice box is that you have these things called vocal cords and they're just a little flap of tissue which is in your neck approximately where that bulge is, about halfway down your neck. So if you run your finger from your chin down your neck towards your chest, there's a prominent bumpy bit, isn't there? That's your voice box, okay? And in there are your vocal cords. And when air rushes out of your lungs past your vocal cords, it makes them vibrate. And when they vibrate, a bit like a string on a guitar, they make little vibrations of sound waves, and the sound waves come out of your voice, and that's how you talk. 
Well, when you get a really heavy cold, it's a virus usually, and that virus attacks the cells, the linings of your nose and the back of your throat, and it can make a lot of mucus or sticky stuff. And the mucus can also get onto your vocal cords. And when you've got a string, if you like, with something sticky on it, it doesn't vibrate as well as when you've got a clear string, does it? No. No. So when you try and vibrate your vocal cords and they're covered in gloop, they make a funny noise. They don't vibrate the way they would do normally, and that's why it goes all croaky and funny when you get a cold. Right. But as soon as the cold goes away and the gloop goes away, the vocal cords return to normal, and then they start working properly, and then you sound normal again. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Brilliant question, though. Do you want to have a go at the quiz? Yeah. Okay. Here we go. Precipitation is another name for rain. Is that science fact or science fiction, Rose? Um, is it science fiction? No, precipitation is rain, water falling from the sky, the cause of much distress at Wimbledon and Lords every year. OK, this is quite a hard one. You ready? Yeah. The chemical formula for iron is I2. Is that fact or fiction? Um. You can confer on this one. Go on, we'll let you. Fact or fiction? Um, is it science fiction? It is. You're quite right, yes. I2 is the chemical symbol for a molecule of iodine, whereas the symbol for iron is Fe. And the third question, the sun is powered by nuclear fusion. Do you think that's science fact or science fiction? Eh? <laughs> is that Rose's mum in the background? <laughs> science fiction. No, the sun does work by nuclear fusion. Um, the pressure and everything in there squashes together atoms of hydrogen and makes them fuse together to make helium. And um, we see that releasing energy that we see as light and heat here on Earth. Well done, Rose. You've got one out of three, and that puts you currently in the lead. <laughs> All righty? Great question, though. And I'll tell you what, I'm going to give you a bonus mark for a fantastic question. All right? Right. Take care, and thank you for calling. Bye. Bye. Rose in Peterborough. If you'd like to ask the Naked Scientist a question, 08459 25 2000. We're live on BBC Local Radio right across the eastern counties. It's Chris and Kat, and we're talking animal communication this evening. No pun on the word cat. And uh, jo here with us in the studio we have Joan Silk, who we'll be catching up with very, very shortly, and she works on why we're nice to each other, or not, as the case may be. And we've heard so far from Katie Slocum from the University of St Andrews, who's working on the kinds of noises that animals can make in order to talk to each other, and Jilly Forrester, who's been working on how animals use body language in order to signal things to each other, and nudge, nudge, wink, wink, and that kind of stuff. If you'd like to ask any of them a question, 08459 25 2000. Now we need to head over to... Abraham, where we're going to talk to Professor uh, Dr Keith Kendrick, who's looking at how animals experience emotions and can perceive emotions in humans. Hello, Keith. Hi. Thanks for joining us on the programme this evening. No problem. Do tell us a bit about your work. Well, we're very interested in an understanding whether sheep are, in many ways, like humans, in that they uh, use visual cues from the face to recognise each other just like we do. They have the same specialised parts of the brain for doing that as we do. And, of course, we don't only sort of derive identity from faces, but we also um, derive emotional information from facial expressions. And so it occurred to us, obviously, to ask the next question, well, if sheep can identify faces, if they're attracted to faces of particular individuals, uh, could they also be identifying cues in the face that gave away sort of emotional state, not just in sheep, but also potentially, of course, in, in their human carers. So could they actually identify human face expressions as well? Do, do sheep have very expressionful faces, then? 
Not particularly, but um, they don't have the sort of the musculature that we do to, to generate the, the many sort of in almost hundreds of different facial expressions that, that we can. However, they do show quite marked changes in the appearance of their faces when particularly they are fearful or stressed. And um, if you look at the same animal's face when it's sort of happy, it's just had a meal or something like that, <laughs> you know, and it's sort of looking... It's been really, sheared on a hot really, day. Well, <laughs> it's really laid back and sort of, you know, its ears are sort of... Is that really laid back? Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Its ears are really pricked up and its eyes are usually relatively closed and it, it's, 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 you know, all's right with the world. The same sheep, if you socially isolate it, for example... Yeah. which they don't like, not surprisingly. Their heart rate shoots up from sort of 80 to 120, and uh, their ears start going back, their eyes sort of bulge, and you can see the whites of the eyes. Their nostrils often flare, and, you know, anybody could tell the difference if you see the pictures between a stressed version of or, you know, fear. But it's quite interesting that they should be able to tell the difference between um, a stressed and a happy person as well. Why should they be able to recognise my face and, and tell me apart from, say, cat, and also recognise when I'm angry or not? Well, I mean, the face recognition system, which, of course, is linked to this, which is recognizing face emotions, is very much a sort of expertise-based system. Um, you have the hardware in the brain that allows you to use it, whether you're a sheep or a human, but you need a lot of experience to really sort of hone it into a, a sort of fine art. And so the, what we think happens with uh, human face recognition, they obviously can, they can recognize human faces, not as well as they can sheep, any more than we can recognize, you know, sheep faces better than we can recognize human faces. But what we think happens is that they learn through the large amount of exposure that they have to humans during the course of their lives to actually, under, you know, to interpret the smiling and angry versions of the same individual's face. And uh, they can generalize then from their sort of familiar handlers to any other human you know, to, to see whether they're sort of happy or, or angry as well. Just a quick question for you, Keith. How long have you been working with sheep for now? Uh, probably about 20 years, actually. So can you recognise sheep? Do you, can you spot, you know, all your sheep and tell the difference? <laughs> um, I, let's put it this way. Uh, I'm, I'm a lot better at recognising sheep than uh, most other people would be, but then I'm not actually the one who spends the, the, the largest amount of time with them. Uh, you know, the people who spend, you know, four or five hours a day with them, they are really good at recognising <laughs> sheep faces. But, but yes, it, it, it is an expertise thing, just like you know, recognising dogs or uh, or any other kind of species, that um, so that once we've you know been exposed to them for so long, we suddenly get very very good at recognising sheep faces. Not as good as we are at human faces, but a lot better than uh, sort of humans who haven't had much experience of sheep, other than maybe seeing them in a distance in a field. Keith Kendrick from Babraham, thank you very much for joining us this evening. It's been no a pleasure having you on the programme. Thank you. Dr Chris and Dr Cat, as the Naked Scientists, here with you through until 7 o'clock this evening. We're talking animal communication. Now, next week on the programme, we're going to be having a really funky time because it's the Christmas show, Christmas edition of the Naked Scientists, the last time we'll be with you in 2005. And for that show, we're going to do a really fancy household experiment because we're going to be investigating the Coriolis effect. In other words, whether or not it affects the direction that water goes down the drain in your bathroom. And so we're going to need you, all around the eastern counties, to be filling up your sinks and emptying them, pull the plug out and see which way the water goes down and we're going to do a big on-air experiment to see whether it's a myth or whether it's a, a science fact but before then let's get back to tonight's subject of conversation where we're talking 
animal communication. We're talking where language evolved from. But now we're going to look at the Good Samaritan because joining us from... She's working in Cambridge this year, but she's normally from California. Joan Silk works on why animals, chimpanzees, are nice to each other. Good evening, Joan. Good evening. Thanks for coming in. Tell us about your experiment because it's fascinating. Well, we were interested in whether or not we would see in chimpanzees something that we see in humans. That is, humans are really quite nice to one another. So if you uh, were out Christmas shopping today, for example, and you had a lot of packages, somebody probably held the door for you at one time or another, somebody that you don't know and somebody that you'll never have a chance to thank or hold the door, ho- hold the door for yourself. So it's a selfless act, if you like. Right, right. And usually when you ask people why they do these sorts of things, um, they say that they feel empathy, particularly when somebody's in trouble. And, and people seem to express sentiments that suggest that they have a real concern for how other people are doing. So, so we, the key question is, what, why should we give a toss about other people? I right. Suppose. And, and right. where mm-hmm. did that evolve from? Where does that come from? Is that something that is just in humans, or is that something we can also see in other primates? So, so how did you answer that? We did an experiment, which was very simple. Uh, we gave chimps, captive chimps, a choice between one option that would give a reward to themselves and a reward to another chimp that they knew, or an option which gave a reward just to them. Now, if you did this with humans, I'm guessing, but if you did this with humans, it's not costing the chimpanzee anything in this context, so it wouldn't cost a human anything to give their mate a reward. Most humans would elect to give their pal something for free too. Right. But the chimps do what? The chimps seem to be entirely indifferent. So they don't really care if their friends are better off or not. That's right. That's right. Which begs the obvious question, well, where do we get it from then? That is the obvious question, and what we now know is that if this experiment is robust, which means if it's replicated in other groups, if it seems to really describe something about chimpanzees, so it's a meaningful experiment, it's a meaningful look at how they feel, if that's the case, then then where we got it is someplace after the point at which humans and apes split. So it happened somewhere along the line uh, to becoming human. So uh, chimpanzees are very social animals. They have very strong social groups like humans do. They are indeed. They're very social and they cooperate in a lot of different contexts. They hunt together, uh, they share meat, uh, they support each other when they get in trouble, and males even uh, at some sites uh, team up to protect access to females. So it's really kind of strange that they shouldn't really then be intelligent enough to think, I'll give my mate a reward as well as getting one myself. Well, it may be that in the wild what happens is that most cooperation is a form of turn-taking. I'll do something nice for you, you do something nice for me, and that that's the way it works. Uh, reciprocity uh, may be common in other animals, But what the experiment suggests is that maybe what chimps don't have is a real concern for the welfare of others. Do you think that that's the thing that catalyzed the evolution of humans? Because when we did then develop the ability to care about other people, it gave us a big advantage. And animals that had that advantage were then much more successful. And as a result, they then passed on their genes to the next generation and the population exploded. And hey, presto, here we are. It's certainly true that we are one of the most cooperative species on the planet, and that cooperation gets us things like war. It also gets us things like um, charity. And 
And um, I think that the ability to cooperate has made humans incredibly powerful because cooperation, when you can manage it, is an extraordinarily effective mechanism for um, accomplishing things. Now, why other animals don't cooperate as much as humans do is a big question because you'd think it would be useful for them as well. But I mean, I'm going to have to make it short, Joan, because we're running out of time. But isn't it surprising to you that other animals don't express these tendencies because they clearly give us a big advantage? It is surprising, and that's the beauty of science, right? Now we have a puzzle that we have to explain. Before, we didn't have the puzzle. Now we have to solve it. You've been listening to The Naked Scientist. Dr Chris, that's me, Dr Kat Arney, here with you until, well, almost haven't got about a minute left, so I'm going to spend this time saying this is pretty much it for 2005. Next week we're going to do this big live on-air experiment to see if uh, the Coriolis effect can explain the direction that water goes down your toilet. So I hope you'll join us at six for that next week. But I would like to say a very, very big thank you to the people who've made this series really take off again in 2005. Our production team, Petro Minch and Anna Lacey and Holly Barclay, who turn up every single week and help us put this programme together. Thank you very much to them and to our guests here this evening who've done a spectacular job of explaining a very complicated field. I want to say thank you to Gillian Forrester from the University of Sussex. I want to say thank you to Katie Slocum who's come from St Andrews to talk to us all the way down from Scotland this evening and I want to say thank you to Joan Silk. The Naked Scientist Podcast brought to you by thenakedscientist.com Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.